Today we have a passage about lawsuits uh, among believers that is sandwiched between two passages of, about sexual immorality, and uh, that seems somewhat odd. You're like, sexual immorality, lawsuits, sexual immorality, this is sort of a weird flow. Um, but there, uh, as we noted in last week in chapter 5, uh, it's more about church discipline than about uh, sexual immorality. And there in chapter 5, we see Paul hammering the Corinthians for being unwilling to discipline slash judge slash bring charges against the brother who is grossly sinning and sinning in public. And here in chapter 6, we sort of get the flip side. We see the Corinthians all too willing to take public action against their brothers, but this time it's over trivial things. And it's like overlooking big issues when they don't affect you, and then being completely and utterly outraged when they uh, do affect you, but they're really small. And so really we have two passages about church discipline. The first in chapter 5 is an admonishment to do church discipline in the first place, and the, uh, the other, today's passage, is how to do it rightly. And with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Stand as we read the word of God. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word, we ask that you would speak mightily through it, that we would, uh, we would see the sinfulness of our hearts, that we would not turn from it, but that we would bring it before the cross and uh, ask that you would forgive us for it. Lord, there are many hard things in this passage. Lord, would you um, give us grace to hear those words of admonition? Lord, be with me as I preach your word. Would it be uh, your words and not mine? And so, Lord, be with us as uh, we come to you in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. I want to start to this morning by telling you about my middle school band director, uh, Mr. Stockwell. He's actually also been my elementary school band director, and so he was the one that had taught all of my uh, classmates and myself how to play our instruments in the first place. 
And by the time I had gotten to eighth grade, um, he had been our band director for three straight years. And that was sort of a big deal because in elementary school, you sort of change teachers every year. And so he had, he had had us for three straight years. And so we had gotten to know uh, him pretty well, and he had gotten to know us pretty well as well. And uh, so, you know, fast forward to the middle of my eighth grade year, a little tiny Frank playing the trumpet, right? And, uh, you know, we're prepping for one of our concerts. And as you might imagine, uh, when you get about 100 or so middle school students together, uh, they don't tend to act their age. And, um, you know, I mean, being generous, middle school students, half the time, like, it's probably not half, but we'll be generous today. Half the time, um, don't act their age. They act like elementary school students, okay? And my middle schoolers, yes, this does apply to you, okay? And, uh, and the other half the time, they act far beyond uh, their years, mature beyond their years. And it's wonderful to see. And, you know, this is why I think middle school is often so rough, right? They're stuck in their ways of what they know to be, uh, like, in their sort of childish ways, but they really want to be grown up and they're really not good at it yet, okay? And so they're just trying really hard, and they're getting the hang of it, but, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their best. And so this particular day in uh, band practice, we had over 100 middle schoolers, of course, and, you know, they're sort of chattering and getting distracted and all of that, and, and this particular day is just really, really bad. Um, we're not listening, we're not paying attention, we're just all over the place, and, you know... Mr. Stockwell is working with a particular section. He's trying to get them to like, get on the same page with him so that he can cue them up to, to sort of practice, right? And after the fifth or sixth time of trying with different sections to get them to be on the same page at the, start, the same starting point, to start playing at the same time and not mess up, after the sixth time in trying and failing, he had had enough, right? He had really had enough. And he really just lit into us. I mean, like, he stopped everything. He just really lit into us. And he said something along the lines of, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves because you're acting like children. You're not eight years old. You're 13. You should be able to sit quietly and pay attention. I expect better of you, and you should expect better of yourselves. <laughs> you know, the room gets really silent. Everybody's been brought low, and... Everybody's quiet because they're feeling the fact that they're not living up to who they actually are. And into that lowness, Mr. Stockwell said, look, you guys are not children anymore. You're middle school students, and you're some of the best middle school students in the county. And you have the potential to be the best middle school band in the county. Let's go. Let's focus on the task at hand. Let's focus on the reason why we're here. Let's focus on the music. And so he did what a good preacher does, right? He, when he gets our attention, he makes us feel the weight of our mistakes. And then he fills it with the truth that we have the ability to be different and to be special in a way that will bless the world. And so we see here uh, that Mr. Stockwell is simply following Paul's blueprint here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul does three things in this passage. First, he gets our attention by bringing us low. Second, he reminds us of who we once were but are no longer. And lastly, he tells us who we are in Christ Jesus, which transforms everything. So first, Paul gets our attention. It's right up front in verse 1. 
When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so you can get a sense of Paul's disbelief and outrage over the way the Corinthian believers were treating one another. We, you know, when we come to the Bible, we tend to read our Bibles in a sort of monotone, right? As if we were reading from a textbook. But the word that is translated dare in verse 1 in the ESV, it's, it really means to have the audacity to. And it really changes the tone of the text. So, when one of you has a grievance against the other, does he have the audacity to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In verses 2 to 6 and, and verse 8 as well, continue to express Paul's sort of incredulous reaction. And he sort of gets on a roll. The rhetorical questions sort of come in rapid-fire sequence. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know we are to judge angels? And if we're judging angels, why can't we handle earthly stuff? And even if you do have tough cases, why do you go to the pagans why, who don't have the wisdom of God? Isn't there even one among you who is wise enough to settle this trivial matter? And you're even cheating your own brother. Paul flat out says that he's saying these things because he wants to shame them. He expected better of them, and his tone speaks volumes about just how easy these disputes should have been to resolve within a gospel-centered context. And it's here that we could get sidetracked about the talk about judging angels and saints judging the world and what the heck does that mean, but that's a whole other sermon. Today, it'll be enough for us to say that it is clear in the Bible, both in the New Testament and in the Old, that we will stand in judgment over the creation with the Lord on the final day. But all of that, all of that just serves to drive home the point that the church is more than capable of handling and mediating disputes between believers. It's really a giant, come on, man, from Paul. It's a wake-up. It grabs our attention. And when Paul has their attention, and ours, he goes further. He makes their behavioral issues an identity issue. The lawsuits against each other is really just the presenting problem. Just like Mr. Stockwell called us out for acting like children, Paul calls out the Corinthians for returning to an identity that they previously had. Paul is saying, you are literally acting like pagans. And that's Paul's big problem with the Corinthians. It's not that they're having disputes with one another. He expects that. If we look again at verse 1, it's not if you have disputes, but when you have disputes. His big problem is that they're handling disputes in a worldly way, in a way that does not reflect their present identity in Christ. And so Paul hammers them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that you pagans are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And the rhetorical implication is that, again, you Corinthian Christian are acting like a pagan. And this really have, ought to have burst sort of the Corinthians bubble. And, you know, if you'd been here for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the ways in which the Corinthians have been getting this sort of Christian walk wrong. How they have sort of inflated themselves and puffed themselves up with pride um, for their Christianness. 
Remember, these are the people that boasted about following Apollos or Cephas or, in our cases, Tim Keller or John Piper or, you know, and gloried in their Christian wisdom. You know, I'm a Christian, and so I know truly how the world works. Do you hear the arrogance and the pride? And then do you hear it deflating with a whimper? Paul is merciless here. You know, if it wasn't enough to call them pagans, he dredges up their sinful history, reminding of them of just how bad they were. Starting midway through verse 9, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I don't know about you, but I really don't like looking at my sin. I don't like being reminded that I'm a huge, ginormous sinner. And Paul, in essence here, is saying, do you understand the weight of just how sinful you actually are? Do you understand that being a Christian is not business as usual, but requires transformation? Do you understand that you're not acting your spiritual age? And so let's just be clear on what the Corinthians are doing. Right? and why Paul is being so hard on them. And to understand what they're doing in this particular passage with the lawsuits and all of that, we need to understand something of the, the historical context. And so first century Greeks uh, were famous for their love of law. They prided themselves as people of the law, and with that pride came a willingness to engage in it. And in that day, securing a judgment in your favor, securing a verdict in your favor, had much more to do with sort of social status and who you knew than the merits of your case. The culture of litigation was not grounded in a sense of justice, but rather a desire to win. And so the prevailing culture in Corinth uh, becomes, uh, comes into focus. People would sue even if they didn't have legitimate grounds on which to sue. They would sue in order to use and leverage their superior economic status and their superior social status to beat down their opponents and their competitors. They would use the courts to score points, to gain honor, and to get ahead. And so the courts, as you might imagine, sort of become a little bit like entertainment, much like Judge Judy is for us. You know, it's sort of ridiculous. People sort of come in with all of their disputes and they look absolutely ridiculous. Why? Because they're suing over trivial things. And that's exactly what's happening here in Corinth. Lawsuits are flying left and right, and it's about nothing. And all it is is to beat down the people that you can. And so the courts were a spectacle, and you dragged your adversary in, not for justice, but to make a mockery of them. And that is exactly what the Corinthians were doing to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, for most of us, right, we watch... TV shows like Judge Judy, like your daytime like talk shows that are kind of sleazy and, you know, like Maury Popich and like, you know, Dr. Phil and Jerry Springer and all of that. And we think these people are so ridiculous. I would never do something like that. I know better than that. Because nobody wins on those shows. Not, not even the people that are vindicated on those shows. Nobody looks good. Why? Because you're on that show to begin with, right? And this is exactly what the Corinthian church was doing. They were dragging people out into the public forum 
for a mockery. Unless you think that you don't do this, think about what your social media posts look like. Do you drag your brother or sister in Christ out into the public forum and blast them? It comes home to roost a little bit. You know, these, these Corinthians, they're dragging their spiritual family before the public courts to make a mockery of them to gain social and economic standing. And they're not just doing so when they have legitimate grounds. They're doing so unjustly. You know, verse 8 is very clear about this. Uh, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. If they were unbelievers, Paul would have expected them to have no moral qualms uh, with cheating, swindling, slandering, and defrauding people for a quick buck or to get ahead. He would have expected them to be just like the world to care nothing about each other, and to only care for themselves. But that's what they were, past tense. They are no longer that anymore. And so now that, uh, now after Paul has gotten their attention and brought them low in shame and reminded of them of who they used to be but are no longer, he reminds them of who they presently are in Christ Jesus. And it starts right here in verse 11, hot on the heels of Paul's pointed reminder of who they were in their sin. And it starts with the word but. And that's a great word both for the Corinthians to hear and for us to hear. That one conjunction changes the expectations. It, sh- it, it, it signals a new direction in the conversation, a shift in thinking, a shift even in identity. And so... Though they were used to handling disputes by simply suing the other party, things are different now. They can't be like I was in middle school when I acted like a child because that was what I was used to, right? But what's different? They're still the same people who are formerly sexually immoral, idolatrous, greedy, drunk, and so on and so forth. What's different is that they're washed, that they were sanctified and that they're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, that's great. We got to Jesus. We got to the gospel. And Paul has brought us there, and the passage ends. And you're like, great, shortest sermon ever. We can go to lunch, right? And it's just, it's as if Paul just sort of drops that Jesus transforms everything and just sort of continues on to talk about different things. But we have big questions about how to apply this. But for Paul, it just sort of seems obvious. It's so obvious that he just doesn't continue to expound on it after he sort of drops the Jesus bomb, so to speak. So why does the gospel not want us to make us, uh, why does the gospel not, uh, why does the gospel make us not want to haul our fellow believers off to court at the slightest insult? How does the gospel change our response to disputes? And the answer actually comes back up front. Uh, back in verses 1 to 8. And these verses sort of are pulling double duty this morning, where they're both getting our attention and also teaching us about how to um, work out the gospel in our own lives. And so we see the gospel changing three things. First, the arena in which we resolve our disputes. Second, the judge to whom we look for justice. And third, the priorities when dealing with disputes. So, First, the change in arena, we'll try to um, go through these quickly. So the change in arena. Remember, back in verse uh, 1, Paul is astounded that the believers are going before unbelievers. In his mind, 
unbelievers are manifestly less qualified to judge these disputes. Believers have at least the word, the law, and the Holy Spirit to uh, help give them wisdom. And they care far more about justice and righteousness than unbelievers do. And one of the preachers that I listened to um, in preparation for this sermon, he would say, basically, the argument is, the most brilliant unbeliever judge is less qualified to judge disputes between believers than the stupidest, dumbest Christian. Why? Because the, the idiot Christian at least has God on his side, which the brilliant guy does not, okay? And so that's, that's the sort of the force of this. And it's important to remember that what must have really gotten to Paul is that this behavior flies in the face of God-ordained structures for just these kind of disputes. I mean, it's not like they didn't have the church and the church structures ready there waiting for them. We have a process of church discipline found in Matthew 18. It's pretty explicit, right? And I mean, come on. The office of elder is literally tailor-made for specifically these situations. If we, if we flip back to Deuteronomy 1 to look at the institution of the office of the elder, the eldership was created to help Moses rule over the people of God. They were explicitly charged to hear and decide cases. Here, Deuteronomy 1, verses 16 and 17. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases, and he's talking about the elders, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you shall bring to me who is Moses, and I will hear it in the sort of uh, position of being the Lord's prophet. There's not only a method in place to mediate disputes, but also ordained leaders that are right there to, for you to ask for help. A gospel-centered approach to disputes seeks out the wisdom that only comes from the Lord, and so it means going to the people of God. You can't go before unbelievers. It just doesn't make sense. Folks, your brothers and sisters in Christ want to help you. You don't have to come to the elders. Every one of you will do. Okay, When you have a dispute that you cannot resolve with, with a person one-on-one, -on -one, find a godly person to help. It doesn't matter who they are. Just find somebody that loves the Lord. And when that doesn't work, then you can come to the elders. Why? Because they are literally ordained specifically for the purpose of making rulings and mediating. And it's important to say here that Paul is not saying that we won't get justice from unbelievers. After all, he repeatedly appealed to the secular courts in Acts, and, uh, and he, he appealed to them for justice. And he also sees them as God-appointed authorities in the epistle to the Romans. And so he's also not saying that all disputes, all conflicts ought to be kept within the church. That's not what we're saying, okay? We've seen sort of what that looks like, and it's really, really bad. Obviously, there are cases that require the inclusion of the secular courts, the secular authorities for the protection of ourselves and for our children, among other things. But the principle is to bring our disputes to the church first. The second change 
that we see um, that the identity of Christ brings is that uh, is in the judge that we look to for justice. As Christians, we uh, trust that the Lord will judge justly and set things right. On judgment day, all sins will be laid bare and justice will be administered. And since we have this justice to look forward to, uh, we don't need to have justice in the here and now. We don't even need to defend ourselves because the Lord will do it for me. Besides, he has said that vengeance is mine, and so I can leave satisfaction to him. I know that I will receive justice, even if I don't receive it now. Do you see how different this is from the worldly perspective? The worldly perspective says winning is everything. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and I have to look out for number one. I have to look out for myself. If I don't get justice now, I will never get justice. And so the only place that I can go is the courts where I depend on other sinful human beings to give me justice or injustice uh, that I so desperately want. Whom do you trust with your belongings, your life, and your circumstances? Is it the courts? Other, unbelie- other human beings that are sinful, or do you trust the Lord? And that has radical implications for the, for the way in which we approach sort of disputes. Do I need to have this dispute settled in my favor, even if I'm right? And from the Christian perspective, the answer has to be, no, I don't have to have it now. Why? Because I know I will have it later. And the Lord has said that he will judge justly. Who do we trust? And the third change is a change in priority. We find this in verse 7, and it calls us to something that is really and truly radical. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be def- rather be defrauded? And Paul says here that the gospel approach to disputes might mean that you take the hit that you would rather see injustice occur against you than divide the body of Christ. And then think about how different that is from the way of the world. Paul, Paul says that because we have been washed, sanctified, and justified by Christ, we ought rather be the victim of a wrong, that we would rather be the loser, that we'd rather see the perp get away with whatever than divide the unity Uh, divide the body of Christ. You know, I can't get over this. The priority is unity with your brother and sister in Christ who has wronged you. The priority is not their sanctification. It's not their discipleship. It's not that they would see what is right. It is not, um, it's certainly not what's, it's certainly not fighting what, uh, fighting for what is right. I mean, Paul makes that explicitly clear when, when he says that we ought to suffer wrong. The priority is the unity of the body of Christ. You know, in the church, we often talk about extending grace to one another as Christ has extended grace to us. And I have a question for us, myself included. Do any of us have unity, disunity with another person in this room? Is there anyone in the church that you're just done with and can't take anymore? Does that sound like unity to you? And before you say that you've forgiven them and that's what counts as unity, let me ask you if you have fellowship with them. 
Do you commune with them? Because when we write people off, especially the folks in the church who are unlovely and hard to love and hard to deal with and hard to get along with, we are essentially excommunicating them, which, is the def- which by definition means not having fellowship with them. Let that sink in. The maximum penalty for unrepentant sin within the church is excommunication. And by writing people off and breaking relationship with them, you are imposing a penalty that says that you believe them to be unrepentant unbelievers, not your brother or sister in Christ. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And it's totally not in line with the gospel. Moreover, it reveals a distinctly incomplete forgiveness. You know, I, I've been, um, you know, I ask, I've been asked like, at the beginning of my marriage with Sarah, uh, what is the greatest thing about being married to her? And uh, I always and will always say the fact that she forgives me and that she forgives me truly and completely. It's, it's really a wonder and a treasure that, she forgives me when I sin against her because I don't deserve it, right? She never brings it back up and it doesn't actually seem to affect her anymore after she forgives me. And now she might just be an amazing actress and is just storing it up for later a boil out. That might be true, but I don't think so, okay? She shows me what true for, that true forgiveness restores relationships. And it's one of the many ways that Sarah continues to show me the wonder of grace and the gospel. And the grace that we receive from Christ in our salvation is both a scandalous grace and an overwhelming expression of love. It's a transforming grace. It's a grace that is not fair in any way, shape, or form, and it's given to those who absolutely don't deserve it. And we are the ones that don't deserve grace. Each one of us is a ginormous sinner. Each of us has defrauded, slandered, cheated, swindled, wronged the Lord. We were in open, willful, and malicious rebellion against him. And what did we get? We got grace. We got Jesus, who in every way deserved honor and glory, and he got a cross. The Lord Jesus could have written us off. He could have even been glorified in our destruction. The scriptures say that those that go to destruction still bring the Lord glory. He could have been glorified in our destruction, but yet he gave us grace. And his priority was unity with you, a wretch of a sinner. And this this change in priority, one that seeks to display Christ and his gospel of grace is a change that is victory for the church. This is why even having lawsuits among believers is a complete defeat. It's like that talk show, right? They show the, these lawsuits show the watching world that we are incapable of giving as we have received. Again, what is the priority? You or unity with your brother or sister in Christ? The church is victorious when we bear with one another in spite of our differences. And in spite of the sin we commit against one another. 
The church is victorious when we show a unity and care for our brother that overshadows their sins and our conflicts with them. Remember back at the beginning when I said uh, my middle school band could be different, right? We could be special in a way that blesses the world. The church can be different. The church can be special in a way that blesses the world. We bless the world when we show it a picture of the radical grace that has been given to us. We bless the world when we beckon them into our church so they can taste and they can see that the grace of God is good. What a picture of Christ in the gospel we show when the ones who drive us the most crazy and hurt us the most are the ones that we fiercely defend and love dearly and give generously to. What a glorious picture that is. And so we close with this courtroom, right? The same place that we start, with a courtroom and a lawsuit. But this time the courtroom is of the Lord. And there as the plaintiff, the one who has been wronged is the Lord Jesus, and we are the defendants. We are being sued for sins committed against the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, having the case signed, sealed, and not yet delivered, did not seek justice against us, but rather he sought to be defrauded and murdered for your sake. He committed himself to the Father uh, for justice, for vindication, and he received it at the resurrection, where he was raised in glory, and it was given a name that was above every name. You were washed and sanctified and justified by this risen Jesus. Will you live in light of that truth and the costly grace that it produces? Or will you be conformed to the image of this world? You need to pray. Father God, there are many hard and good words in this passage for us, words that call us to a radical love and a radical grace that seeks to show your gospel in our conflicts. Lord, each of us is not inclined to uh, choose grace, choose to be defrauded. Lord, I ask that the wonder of your gospel, the wonder of the grace that has been given to us that is unmerited, that we don't deserve, that we don't even come, to deserve, even come close to deserving. Lord, would the, the wonder of that grace seep into our interactions with each other? Would we seek to express um, your gospel in the way that we approach these conflicts. Help us take the hit. Help us uh, display you and your willingness to sacrifice um, your very self for us. And so, Lord, would it be a glorious picture of your gospel to the watching world? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.